Our first reading of God's Holy Word is taken from the book of the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading of God's holy word is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19 through 34. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you who you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, 
and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The Gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. They were waiting for something. They weren't actually quite sure what it was they were waiting for, but the scriptures of God, which had gone silent for 400 years, had promised that God was going to do something amazing, astounding. The messenger of the covenant would come to the temple, and it would be a remarkable blessing. It would be the crowning moment of what God was doing. But exactly what it was, the exact framing of it to know exactly what to look for, uh, they weren't so sure about that. And John the Apostle shows us their confusion in the questions of these questioners who came from the Pharisees. They ask John, are you the Christ? At least that's assumed because John tells them, I'm not the Christ. Then they ask, are you Elijah? The scripture said that there would be Elijah coming before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Was that an Elijah? So that it's somebody who is in the spirit and power of Elijah, or is it the actual Elijah? They don't really know. But apparently they're asking John, are you physically actually Elijah? And John says, no. Then they ask, are you the prophet? And they seem to differentiate that from, are you the Christ? Which we who have the fulfillment of all the ages know is the exact same question as, are you the Christ? Because the Christ is the anointed one who will be the prophet, the priest, and the king. And when they ask, are you the prophet? Well, they're asking, are you the Christ again? But in their mind, it's not quite so clear But they knew that they were waiting for something. God had promised it, and this looked like it could possibly be it. They were the visible church. Now, they wouldn't necessarily use that language. We use it uh, philosophically, uh, but they would have identified themselves as the called-out assembly, They would identify themselves as the people who were in the congregation, and they were visible. They were people who had received the sacraments of God and lived in the community of God. They had forged a life inside the community of God, and they were waiting for God to work through people that he would send to do what he was going to do. There was going to be a great deliverance. There was going to be a great act of God that hadn't happened yet. And the visible church was waiting. And John the Baptist acknowledged that he was part of what they were waiting for. Who are you? They ask. And John says, well, I am somebody you're waiting for. 
I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Pharisees knew their Bible very well, in fact. And when he quoted Isaiah 40, they knew what he was saying. And I'm sure that a a certain excitement must have crept up in their minds, perhaps, because John was saying, I'm in line for that great thing that's coming. I am who is spoken about in Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is a most positive revelation from God. Here in John, John the Baptist just quotes one line from it, but if we were to go to the prophet Isaiah, which in fact we're going to do, uh, this is the fullness of what John was quoting. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, But the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. They didn't know what they were waiting for, but it was obviously something very, very good. God had promised something amazingly good. And John said, yeah, I'm part of that. Let's break down what Isaiah is saying and what John is quoting. In verse 1 to 2 of Isaiah 40, God is promising a full fulfillment of everything that his covenant had given to his people, but not in full measure. Had given to his people, but not completely secured yet. When this event happens you will be able to comfort my people. You'll be able to tell them that they will no longer be slaves yoked into warfare, because that's what the Hebrew word speaks of when it says your warfare is accomplished. It pictures conscripted slaves who are forced into battle. Whatever that means, you're going to be free from that. 
you're going to be able to tell her, that is, the people of God, your iniquity is completely and utterly and irrevocably pardoned. Now, God had been extending forgiveness to them, but he had been doing it under the auspices of ever-recurring sacrifices that talked about ever-recurring sins. But when this event would take place, iniquity would be ministered to forever. You would be able to say, I am a forgiven person. God holds nothing against me anymore. Your iniquity is pardoned. Uh, You will have received from the Lord's hand far more than you ever needed for the sins that you have committed. In verse 3 for 5, there would be a proclaimer of this. There would be a voice crying in the wilderness. He would cry out to level every hill and fill up every valley. He would call for crooked places to be made straight and straight places to be attended to. Uh, There would be a voice, someone talking to the people of God and saying, this time has come. And then in verse 6 through 8, you would have the foundation of that fulfillment. Although everything in the world is transitory, all flesh is as grass and the people of the world are grass, they grow up, they wither, they die, everything in the world is like that except for one thing. That is, the word of our God stands forever. And so Isaiah says, the fulfillment's coming, there will be somebody to proclaim it, and the foundation for this fulfillment is that God promised it. And God is the not lying God, he is the one who, when he says something, it is as good as it was done, the word of the Lord will stand. And so this fulfillment will take place. And then in verse 9, Zion, which is the city of God and stands for God's people, are to respond to this event. They are to worship God in in gratitude. They are to lift up their voice with strength. They are to go onto a high mountain and praise God for what he is doing. In verse 10 through 11, we see the channel through which this fulfillment will take place. The Lord God will come himself, and with a strong hand, his arm will rule for him. Uh, He will care for his people. Uh, He will feed them like a flock. This fulfillment is literally God with us. You might say Emmanuel, which if we looked at other places in Isaiah, the one who would fulfill this is named that. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is what John alludes to, and it is one of the most precious statements in all of Scripture. It is the promise of the Christ, God with us, God's pinnacle of what he is doing with us. They ask him, who are you, and why are you doing what you're doing? And John says, it's happening. And I am the voice crying out in the wilderness Everything you've been waiting for, even though you don't really have a full lock on how it's going to happen, let me assure you it is now happening. In some ways, we are similar to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the entirety of the Old Testament at their fingertips. And they knew from God there had been great promises in 
the one who would come, and it would be God among them. They had a general idea of his promises. They expected his promises. But the way it would work out, well, uh, they didn't have a clear grasp on that. We are not that different at this moment. We have been promised that the Lord Christ will return again, that he will come among us in a final way, and we are waiting for that. But when you hear godly Christians talk about exactly how that will play out, uh, you kind of begin to hear whispers of the Pharisees' confusion. There are godly post-millennialists, like us, actually, that's what we confess. There are godly amillennialists. There are godly premillennialists. Truly faithful people, people who belong to the Lord. We are all waiting for his second coming. We know that God has promised it, but the details of how it's going to work out, well, very good and godly people don't quite agree, and I have a feeling we're going to look back on our discussions about it and say we sounded kind of like the Pharisees. Are, are you the Christ? Oh, maybe you're the prophet. Oh, those are the same? We didn't know that. But God has promised that Christ is coming, and we are waiting for that promise, and we are waiting in joyful expectation and hope, really just like the visible church was waiting in the day of John the Baptist. And John gets to tell them, it's happening, I'm here, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. But, what exactly does Isaiah's prophecy mean, especially in verse 3 through 5? The proclaimer we get, John the Baptist has come to proclaim, but there is some imagery there that kind of needs breaking out, and when you break it out, uh, a more somber message begins to kind of settle upon you when you realize what's being said. The one crying in the wilderness says, prepare the way for the Lord, which means that way is not currently prepared. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, which means that John is in a desert. Now, he's physically in a desert, but is that what Isaiah is talking about? Well, probably not. The image of a desert in Scripture oftentimes applies to a spiritless, dry, uh, godless condition. The way of the Lord is not prepared. We're in a desert. You need to make a highway for our God. Every valley will be exalted. And every mountain and hill brought low. Is Isaiah talking about actual mountains and hills? Probably not. The proclaimer is not proclaiming to mountains and hills and valleys. He's proclaiming to people. And in the imagery, if you're a mountain, you're not what God wants you to be. And if you're a valley, you're not what God wants you to be. There is supposed to be a straight highway for the king to come through, God himself, as we're told at the end of the prophecy. And we need to do some reconstruction. If you are a mountain, we've got to level you. And if you are a valley, we've got to fill you in. This is the language of change. This is the language of uh, certainly sanctification. This is the language perhaps of conversion. There are all sorts of people not where they should be 
I've been sent to proclaim to God's people. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. I have to come to the visible church, the community of God's church, and one of the most central things that I'm going to proclaim is you're not ready for God to come. He's supposed to come, and I'm here to pave the way, and you, the community of God, you, the visible church of God, I am going to call you to repentance, to change. When Luke deals with John the Baptist, he makes this abundantly clear. In Luke chapter 3, Uh, we begin in verse 3, and the evangelist there is talking about John, and we read, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance. So whatever his baptism is doing, it is a baptism of repentance. It is not like Christian baptism, which is the sign of the covenant, uh, the promise of the covenant, John's baptism is so, something totally different. It is attached to repentance, and those who are receiving it are needing to repent. Uh, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So here, Luke quotes our passage much more at length, and you might be wondering, okay, well, what does this repentance look like? What is John really calling them to do? Well, Luke now shines the spotlight on what that actually means. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. Now, who is is the multitude coming out to hear John? They are not Greek unbelievers. They are not Roman centurions. They are not godless Chinese. The group that is coming out to hear John's preaching are visibly in God's covenant. They are circumcised Jews raised in the covenant of God. They are being preached to by John, and John says to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not 
intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, but be content with your wages. Who are these people? They are God's visible church. Who are these tax collectors? They are in God's visible church. Who are these soldiers? They are in God's visible church. And John is baptizing them for repentance. He is preaching repentance. Luke emphasizes that repentance is the very heart of his ministry, and he is not preaching to unbelievers. He's preaching to churchmen, people who were in the synagogue last Saturday, who would be in the synagogue next Saturday, people who may be given the honor of reading the scripture on the Sabbath, people who were taking offerings to the temple, people who were thoroughly religious, John looked at the visible church and he preached at the visible church, you need to repent, you need to turn away from what you're doing and do the exact opposite. And when the people asked him what that meant, John didn't spiritualize it and make it philosophical. He said, you're doing this, knock it off, do that. It was a clear call to a tangible repentance. In fact, John told them, you know, the fact that you are in the visible church, you are physical sons of Abraham, that's not going to mean anything. Now, it's significant, but it's not going to mean anything without actually being repentant. The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. God's going to cut them down. Uh, You may say, we're in the physical line of Abraham. Well, good for you. God can animate the rocks and give them spirits and make them children of Abraham. This is to the visible church. This is to the people that the scripture says, you are waiting joyfully for the coming of Christ. You are waiting for the promised event. You You are longing in hope for that to happen. But before that happens, you must repent. Consider what I'm saying in light of the reading that I read from Malachi. The reason why I read from Malachi is because this also is about the ministry of John the Baptist. He will go ahead of the Lord who comes after him, although he is before him. He will come to the temple, and everybody is waiting joyfully for the coming of Christ. They are waiting for the the messenger of the covenant to come to the temple. This is going to be the pinnacle of God's act among his people, and we can't wait. And what did Malachi say would happen? When he comes, he's going to sit as a refiner. He's going to sit as a washer. He is going to refine his church. He is going to wash his church, and he is going to come in judgment. You're waiting for him expectantly, but he is going to come and he is going to look at his visible church and he is going to see adulterers, perjurers, uh, greedy abusers. He is going to see all those things in his visible church. And you know what? It turns out God's kind of judgmental. God has some absolute ideas about what his people are supposed to look like. And when he comes among us, he is going to bring the pain 
he is going to bring down his judgment on his visible church because his visible church doesn't fear him, says Malachi. Why do we use the term visible and invisible church? We do that in the Reformed Church a lot. You'll hear it from the pulpit. Why do we do that? Well, again, it's philosophical. It's to make a distinction. In the Scripture, uh, the Scripture uses its own words. And to be honest, I kind of wish as the Reformed Church we'd kind of stuck with the words the Scripture already used. When we talk about the visible church, we're talking about the body of the disciples, Those who are outwardly religious, they receive the sacraments, they are part of the covenant of God in an outer way that is very significant, but not every disciple is a believer. A believer is converted. God gives faith. If you have faith in the Son of God, uh, saving faith, lasting faith, obviously faith not of yourself, That's a gift from God, and you're not just a disciple, you're a believer, a converted person. Philosophically, we talk about the invisible church. Because when you look around the church, go ahead, look around the church, look at people. Can you say without a doubt, everybody you're looking at is a converted person? Can can you do that? You can't do that. And in fact, you can't look around and say, you know, I like everybody here except, you know, you. I don't like you. And I'm betting you're not a converted person. You you don't have that ability. God does, though. He looks at his visible church and he looks at the heart of every person. And God, looking down on us right now, sees everyone who is converted and everyone who is not. He knows whom he has given belief to. He knows who he has brought from death to life. We don't. The visible church is pretty much what we work with. And Malachi is saying, God is going to come, and when he comes, you're waiting for him with joyful expectation, but you might want to think about that. You may be the deacon of this Baptist church. You may be the warden on the Episcopal board. You may be a congregationalist elder, but um, God knows. God knows your heart, he knows your condition, he knows what you're doing, and when God shows up, God is going to be judgmental and he's going to cleanse his church. And so when John says, I'm the voice of one calling the wilderness, he's kind of giving a bit of a warning. God is coming, but if the way for the Lord in his visible church, not in the world, in his visible church is not made straight, God's going to do something about it. And it's not going to be pretty. I made the comment that we are like the Pharisees waiting for Christ's coming. We are like them in the idea that, you know, the way it's going to play out, we've got all the promises, but we don't really know exactly how it's going to play out, but we know it's going to happen. I fear that we are in another way like the Pharisees. Inside of the evangelical church, the evangelical church, there is a longing for the second coming of Christ. We have been promised he is going to come. And we wait with joyful expectation. In fact, uh, fads go through the evangelical church where preaching on the second coming becomes the thing that we do 
and we are joyfully waiting for Christ to come. We, we cry out, Maranatho, come, O Lord. We, we long for his coming. But God doesn't change. I, the Lord, do not change, said the prophet Malachi, speaking for God. And then he assured us, because he doesn't change, we're not utterly destroyed. But God doesn't change. When God looks down on the visible church today, when he looks down on us, what does God see? What spiritual estate is the visible church in? Is the visible church in any better spiritual estate than the visible church was in when John the Baptist was proclaiming, make straight the ways of the Lord. Are we spiritually more healthy? Is the Holy Spirit moving among us in a way that the ordinances of God are being lived out? Uh, The world looks at the visible church and says, you know, if you are looking for someone who is obviously close to their God and you can see it in their actions, look at an evangelical Christian because... An evangelical Christian walks according to God's ordinances. They are, they are close to God. Their churches are close to God. Their churches are known for honesty and sincerity and truth. They walk according to the ways of their God, and we cannot deny it. The evangelical church is a model of faithfulness to God. Right? Is that where we're at? You know we're not. I know you know we're not. I I thought about running through a list of sins and then saying, you know, this is us. But there would be a a danger with that in that I would choose the sins that really bother me and I would leave out the sins that don't. And God doesn't do that. So let us just kind of stand on what God said to the visible church in John's day. I'm going to come. I'm going to be a refiner's fire. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to come to adulterers, liars, perjurers, greedy people, people who take advantage of orphans, yada, yada, yada. I'm going to know all about it, and I'm coming into your midst. And the first and absolute requirement of the visible church is to repent. You want me to come among you. You are excited to have me come, but I will not come and treat lack of holiness like a light thing. Make straight the path of God. He is coming into your midst. Level the mountains. Fill in the the valleys. Make a highway for God to come. Return and repent to him. If you are a soldier who is extorting people for money, stop that. If you are a thief, stop stealing. If you are an adulterer, stop committing adultery. God is coming. God never changes Do you think the shadow of God's holiness is any less of an awesome shadow concerning his second coming as it was his first? When we are polled, when when people ask us about our actual moral estate, it always comes out through the polling numbers that The churches that claim to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the churches who believe in Christ as the only answer, we always fall just like the world. 
Uh, adultery, are we any better in the world? No, not statistically. Uh, how about uh, stealing? Are we statistically better than the world? Turns out not. And yet we are waiting for the second coming. We are crying out, O oh Lord, Maranatha, the world is getting darker, so, so come, we are longing for you. There's probably not going to be a John the Baptist come this time. But do you think that the call to prepare a way before him is any less significant and severe? Do we really want the Lord Jesus Christ to split the skies tonight? It's often said that no man knows the Lord's coming. We don't. Could this be the day the Lord returns? I guess. I'm not in management. I'm just in sales. But do we want him to do that today? Do we want to see the glorious presence of our Lord returning to earth? Is that something the evangelical church today really wants to have happen? Or maybe preparing the way for the Lord is something we really ought to do. The Lord Christ is going to come back to a church, if it is today, where the mountains are still high and the valleys are still deep, where the road is still through a desert, where his people don't really fear him. Do we want him to come this day? Will we cry Maranatha? Will it be a happy and glorious occasion for the majority of the visible church? I really shudder. I really do. But what is to bring us to the repentance that John cries out for us to have? Wherein is the power and the motivation to repentance? You might take from my sermon that the motivation is fear. Uh, God is coming. He's going to, to refine us in fire. Uh, you should be afraid of that and you should repent. The only problem with that is that the prophet Malachi said, my people don't fear me. That's the way they are. That's why they're doing what they're doing. So there's a godly fear and we should have it. But fear doesn't really lead to repentance because um, we're drain damaged. If, if we were thinking right, then honestly, the holiness of God would drive us to repentance in an instant. We would fall before his throne, we would repent, but that's not who we are. Where is the power and the motivation for this repentance that we must come to, that as a visible church we must embrace? Where, where is that going to come from? Well, that's in John's message between verse 29 and verse 32. In verse 39, we read, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, look, look with your eyes, behold, it's a command, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You are called to repentance. You are called to a tangible repentance, not just some uh, ethereal, you know, I'm a sinner and that's bad. You're called to turn away from your sins, to lay them down. What will motivate you to do that? The wrath of God? No, you're already under that. 
Look at what God is doing. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The stick will not beat us to repentance. But John has come to proclaim the messenger of the covenant. He has come to point to him. And when he points to him, he tells his listeners, whom he's called a brood of vipers, Behold the Lamb of God. God is acting. God will take away the sins of the world. They're in the visible church. They know the sacramental aspects of the church. They know what the Lamb of God refers to. It's an offering. The priest will slay a lamb and it will be a sin offering. John points to that guy and says he is the Lamb of God. And he will permanently, totally, utterly take away the sins of the world. We'll never be beaten into repentance. If I could yell at the visible church and make them repent, it had already happened. Because, I mean, you know me. I'm not exactly a hostage negotiator. Um, Even in my own life, uh, can I yell at myself and repent? Well, no. I mean, I'm, I'm given myself, I'm dead in my sins. I have no power to break my addictions. But God has acted, says John. God has sent a lamb to be sacrificed. That sacrifice will take away the sins of the world. Reach out to what God is doing. Embrace grace. God is going to graciously take away your sins. Therefore, you should repent. In sign of evangelicalism, all the way going back to the Reformation... There has been held in, in, in hostility the concept of grace and the concept of holiness. If you have a church that preaches the grace of God, uh, people will say they're, in, they're encouraging lack of holiness because God is gracious and therefore you can count on his grace and it doesn't matter if you sin, you can just embrace what God has done. And so another movement will rise up and emphasize holiness. God has commanded righteous holiness of his people. People who are saved will live according to holiness. Uh, This will go off the rail eventually, but at the beginning it will be very positive. Uh, You're called to obey God, and the people who emphasize grace will say, okay, you're being legalistic, and ultimately that will happen. The people who emphasize holiness will look at the people who are emphasizing grace and say, you know, ultimately, you're, you're, you're promoting carnality, and sadly, that does often happen. In Scripture, the motivation for holiness is God's grace. And God's grace comes that you may be sanctified to holiness. In Scripture, holiness and grace embrace, they kiss. They are the gift of God, they are the two sides of the coin, You are saved from death to life that you might live a life alive. There's there's no contradiction there. And the visible church is supposed to be made up of the invisible church. If you are seated in God's church and you are receiving his sacraments and you are calling yourself a Christian, if you are, are living outwardly as God's people you should be washed in the grace of God, you should be transformed, you should be living a life of gratitude that comes out as holiness. And so John, after preaching, repent, 
points to Christ and says, this is the lamb that will take away your sin. There is nothing in you that will do it, but God has acted. And then in verse 33, he tells us this one who has come to be the Lamb of God has also come to send the Spirit upon us. John is preaching in a desert. And it's not just the desert of the world, the desert of the physical planet. John is preaching in a desert of a visible church. It is spiritually dry and lifeless, but what happens when the Spirit comes to a dry and thirsty land? The Spirit brings life and refreshment and power for life. The Spirit in Scripture is often pictured as bringing the the desert to a, a verdant bloom. And so you're called to repent, but the Spirit is being sent by God. The Spirit is being sent among His people, and the Spirit is not just a psychological concept. It is the Spirit bringing life to the desert. Repentance is impossible by man. It is the gift of God, and it is the gift of God through the sacrifice of Christ and the gift of the Spirit. Why can you repent? It's not your power, but God has sent His Spirit. And then in verse 34... Uh, John emphasizes this is the Son of God. You're called to prepare for his presence, but uh, what would you do? What would you do if somebody of great significance, uh, somebody of importance, famous, were to come into our midst right now? If they were to come with the cameras and entourage of a very important person and they were to come to this church and be in our midst, how would we react? There would be a a strong impetus to clean this place up. There would be a strong emphasis to make everything nice and look good, not because we are uh, pretentious, but because royalty demands certain response. Well, John says, I have seen that this is the Son of God. When I came as the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, that God would be among us, I wasn't kidding, and here he is, God among us. Repentance becomes a lot easier when you know that God is, in fact, right there. Well, that's what happened. And that's what's happening. 2,000 years later, we wait for the second coming of Christ, and we currently wait in a very desert-like state. We wait for the coming of Christ, and we cry out, Oh, Lord, come today. And I'd give you that a lot of people who cry that out from their hearts are not going to like what happens when he does. But behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Behold the Spirit which is real and is in every converted heart. Behold the fact that God really is among you. Uh, Jesus tabernacled among us. He was God in the flesh walking with us. And then when he departed, he sent the Spirit, which is still God among us. God is literally here. Today, there must be a call to the visible church to repent. 
There absolutely must be. Religion as business as usual has to stop. Because religion as business as usual is worldly, spiritless, ungodly. It is worse for your spirit than it is better. It is a travesty. And when Jesus Christ returns to business as usual religion, it's not going to go well for them. We must repent. Our Lord Christ is coming. Let every hill be laid low. Let every valley filled in. Let repentance be filled with his church because we are his people and the king is coming. But he has given of himself the power for that repentance. The spirit dwells within us. It still contends with his church. May we hear the call to repent before the one we so think we want to come, comes, so that we can really want him when he comes. May it be so.